Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, remembering the impact of World War II on Florida at the Museum of Florida History in Tallahassee. The post-war population boom was something that uh, really transformed Florida into what's more considered the modern state. We'll discuss early soil survey maps of Florida, Anybody interested in the history of land use for a particular area would be concerned with these types of maps because it shows the evolution of land use and how that's changed. And we'll talk about Florida's first professional football team, the Miami Seahawks. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate, of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Within an hour of this speech delivered by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt on December 8, 1941, Congress voted to bring the United States into World War II. The war had a major impact on the growth of Florida, which is reflected in a permanent exhibit at the Museum of Florida History in Tallahassee. Bruce Gretz is senior museum curator. This was an exhibit that uh, the Florida Department of Veterans Affairs worked with the museum on. It was 2004 we uh, installed this exhibit and it's part of a larger project they had that included a uh, Florida World War II heritage trail, the uh, three-dimensional uh, Florida World War II uh, monument out in front of the building, and then this is the museum's component. And uh, as you say, uh, Florida's role in World War II uh, really transformative. Uh, Florida was relatively rural area before World War II, a large influx of servicemen for training during the war, uh, industry like shipbuilding occurred, and uh, by the uh, time the war was over, we're looking into getting into what's considered modern Florida. During World War II, Florida's population exploded. Key West had 13,000 residents in 1940 and 45,000 by war's end five years later. The population of Miami almost doubled to more than 325,000. Florida became a training ground for American troops. Well, we began our exhibit looking and emphasizing uh, military training in Florida because that was one of the, the key aspects of uh, what was going on here in the state. 
for instance, naval aviation and uh, U.S. Army uh, Air Force uh, aviation were key here. There was a huge number of bases and outlying fields. Florida's mild climate, flat terrain, that allowed for year-round training for aviation. So that's something that was a real concentration here in the state. Also, in addition, um, here at, like, say, uh, Camp Blanding, which is now a uh, National Guard camp, uh, during World War II, uh, it's said population-wise to have been the fourth largest city in the state. And so it was an area that was training uh, both uh, infantry divisions and then individual uh, replacement soldiers. Between Camp Blanding and also Camp Gordon Johnston down on the coast at Carabelle, they had done uh, amphibious training there. Between those two bases, the uh, three uh, significant uh, U.S. Uh, infantry divisions that went ashore at Normandy had some of their training here in Florida. So it wasn't just aviation. Uh, ground forces were also uh, very active in training in the state. Uh, down in uh, Daytona Beach, uh, the WACs, the Women's Auxiliary Corps, was developed a training base, and that was partly uh, as a result of uh, noted African-American educator Mary McLeod Bethune had lobbied uh, President Roosevelt to set up a WAC training base. And so from 1942 to early 1944, a large number of uh, women trained here in Florida. The World War II exhibit on permanent display at the Museum of Florida History in Tallahassee includes informational panels and displays of uniforms, photographs, and artifacts. Curator Bruce Gretz. Some of them are representative examples. Uh, we have a uh, infantry soldier's fatigues, uh, web belt. Uh, then we also have uh, some photos of uh, classes, essentially military classes that trained at Camp Blanding. And uh, they ha even have something like a souvenir pillow cover that uh, soldiers would buy and then send home to sweethearts as a token of where they were uh, training here in Florida. Florida's participation in World War II went beyond serving as a training ground for soldiers. Immediately after the United States joined the war, German submarines began attacking supply ships off the coast of Florida. Indeed, uh, in the early uh, months of the war, pretty much about the first seven months of 1942 was a time where German U-boats or submarines were attacking uh, uh, Allied freighters uh, that were going uh, around like the, through the Straits of Florida, between Florida and Cuba, and then they were taking the Gulf Stream and coming right up along the eastern coast. So uh, quite a few uh, tankers and freighters were attacked and sunk in Florida, and this was before they were able to get uh, effective uh, naval escort and uh, convoy operations. And eventually, in uh, later uh, 1942, the Germans pretty much pulled back their offensive in order to, uh, to uh, concentrate on defending Europe. But for the early part of the war, um, there were instances like off Jacksonville where civilians would see a burning tanker and even see the submarine surface. So it really brought the war home to Florida. It was not uncommon during World War II to see men working in Florida citrus groves wearing clothing marked with P's and W's, indicating that they were German prisoners of war. Bruce Gretz. 
They were brought back uh, first from the North African campaigns, also from some captured uh, submariners, and then eventually from uh, Europe and Italy. And uh, they were put to work many times, uh, like picking citrus. Uh, they had them stationed in POW camps, uh, particularly around like Camp Blanding. And uh, as I've mentioned uh, before, that Germans that were captured and brought to Florida were considered fortunate as opposed to Germans who were captured by the Russians and taken to Siberia. So uh, they were held in bases around Florida and even held in Florida for a while after the war ended uh, just because there was so much uh, displaced persons in Europe. And so they uh, took uh, classes in English and uh, American values. In addition to the German POW clothing, the World War II exhibit at the Museum of Florida History includes a variety of American uniforms worn by both men and women. We tried to be uh, particularly careful to include all of the major uh, military services. Um, there's examples of uh, an officer's uh, uniform from a uh, U.S. submarine commander who'd received the uh, Navy Cross. And uh, next to it is a enlisted man's uh, sonar operator's uh, uniform. And uh, to the right of that, there's a uh, U.S. Marine dress coat. And uh, we also have uh, illustrations such as a photograph of one of the uh, members of the Seminole tribe of Florida who joined the U.S. Marines, uh, fought in the Pacific, and later became uh, head of the uh, Seminole tribe in Florida. In terms of Army materials, we have an Ike jacket from a highly decorated officer, and uh, it includes his medals such as the Distinguished Service Cross, the Silver Star, the Bronze Star, and the Purple Heart. And uh, he had fought uh, the Battle of the Bulge and uh, other um, uh, military campaigns in Europe. In addition to that, there's also uh, artifacts from uh, individuals who served in the Army Air Forces. And uh, one of the interesting items is an escape map from the China-Burma-India theater, where it has in uh, seven different languages, the pilot who was shot down could show it to a native and then be able to go back to his own lines asking for help. African Americans played a crucial role in World War II. Some of the famous Tuskegee Airmen were from Florida. This is a portion of the uh, African Americans in the military exhibit we have. Um, during the war, um, more than uh, 50,000 black Floridians entered the military in different, uh, predominantly in the Army, and uh, often uh, as uh, support personnel such as uh, truck drivers and uh, other types of uh, military service support. Although um, we highlight uh, some of the most uh, dramatic service, which was with the Tuskegee Airmen. And uh, we're very fortunate to have had donated for this exhibit um, some of the memorabilia of James Polkinghorne, uh, who's uh, was from Pensacola, and including uh, his posthumous Purple Heart. Uh, he was uh, a Tuskegee Airmen fighter pilot who was uh, flying a strafing mission in Italy. Unfortunately, uh, his aircraft went down and, uh, and he was killed. But we have uh, his uh, training yearbook, uh, as I mentioned, the Purple Heart, uh, pilot's file, and uh, photographs. 
Amid the memorabilia, artifacts, and documents, it's the personal items of individual soldiers on display that have the greatest impact on many museum visitors. Bruce Gretz. Primarily these are uh, materials that were uh, donated uh, over the years to the museum and in some instances we uh, solicited donations specifically for this exhibit. Um, on the home front uh, we have materials related to civil defense. Uh, fortunately there was, uh, with the exception of the attack on Hawaii, there was not attacks on the American homeland during the war. but there were civil defense uh, members who were prepared for such. Um, Red Cross uniform, uh, a lot of home front posters, uh, everything from uh, you know loose lips, sink ships type of approach to find your war job, uh, plant a victory garden. Um, in addition, there's uh, information on the rationing program that occurred uh, on the home front. A lot of people really don't think of having uh, meat and sugar and rubber and shoes rationed during the war, but they uh, had to work out a system where uh, they would uh, give ration cards. We have examples of those where you'd tear out stamps in order to uh, uh, pay for uh, materials so uh, they could limit the amount of material going to the civilian sector. They could basically focus the majority of what they needed for the wartime sector. After World War II, the population of the United States increased by 15% and the population of Florida expanded by 46%. The post-war population boom was something that uh, really transformed Florida into what's more considered the modern state. Um, many soldiers who trained here decided to either come back for an education on the GI Bill or come back to uh, you know, start a home, start a family. Uh, in terms of the university system, there were so many GIs coming back that here in Tallahassee, the Florida State College for Women had to become Florida State University to uh, absorb all of the, uh, of the men coming back on the GI Bill. So uh, toward the end of the war, uh, Florida produced one booklet called After Victory, and it was promoting Florida as a state that people could move to. Bruce Gretz is Senior Museum Curator at the Museum of Florida History in Tallahassee. The World War II exhibit is one of the museum's permanent displays. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org, where we archive every episode of this program, as well as the public television series, Florida Frontiers. You can find great books on Florida history and culture, and subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly. Find out about upcoming events and much more at myfloridahistory.org. Surely this
Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, today we're discussing historic soil survey maps of Florida. What are they? Well, Ben, at the very basic level, these maps identify the makeup and physical properties of the chemistry of the soil that's beneath our feet, which, surprisingly enough, is is very complex. And these soil profiles reflect the various characteristics of the soil that, that we walk on, drive on, and that our houses are built on throughout the state of Florida. And it's a very interesting science. At least it's evolved into very interesting science. But the beginnings of the early surveys really starts in the late 19th century, and the motivations for these surveys were purely economic. It was about agricultural development. So especially in Florida in the late 19th and early 20th century, both the state and local government were promoting agricultural development throughout Florida. There was a major push to not only develop the southern portion and and the more rural parts of the state, but also cultivate the resources that Florida had to offer, the natural resources. So in order to do that, scientists had to understand where the best locations were to get the most out of the soil that we were utilizing. So we think about Florida today as having relatively sandy soil or, you know, we don't see a whole lot of rocks like granite and things like that that you might see in other parts of the country, but it doesn't mean that the soil isn't chemically complex. So these maps were produced to help illustrate the complexity, but also help farmers and those at the state level to plan and develop where large farming operations should take place. And also, in the early 20th century, the state was very concerned about the very southern portion of Florida, basically the Everglades. And there was a concerted effort to drain the Everglades and utilize that land for agricultural purposes. And these soil surveys were an integral part of that policymaking in the early 20th century. Now, you have some of the earliest soil survey maps from your archival collection here. What are we looking at? Well, I just grabbed a selection. We have uh, some early maps from dating from about 1905. Actually, the earliest we have here covers Leon County, which is where the, the capital of Florida, of course, Tallahassee, is located. It was printed in 1906, but most of the survey was done in the years leading up to 1906, so between 1903, 1904, 1905. Uh, and it involved an enormous group of people who physically had to travel around the county taking these core samples and identifying the different types of soils, but also simply walking and and noting elevation changes, because even slight elevation changes would change the chemical makeup of the soil and the physical makeup of the soil. So it was very painstaking when you think about the actual process. But when you look at the final product, these soil surveys that we're looking at now, specifically this one of Leon County, they're aesthetically very pleasing. I mean, they're kind of a work of art. There are various shades and colors of blues and pinks and greens. And of course, on the side here, we have a legend that identifies what types of soils that we're looking at, and they kind of flow and ebb and move with really no rhyme or reason, it seems like. But within all of these areas, let's take, for instance, we'll we'll focus on Tallahassee. They've also identified where the streets, the railroads, where particular buildings are. And this is very important because it, it, it almost looks like the maps are these wonderful watercolors that are overlaid on top of a political map. So you still have all of the distinguishing features of political maps. So we know where these places are relative to the collage of of color samples that identify all the different types of soil and and the ground that's underneath these areas. So it's important when we think about urban development as well, because all of these buildings were built on top of different types of soil. And, you know, larger buildings may not be suitable for a certain type of soil. So they they had to kind of take that into consideration when planning eventual growth of, of some of these urban areas. You know, when we think of of Florida, we think of sand, but it's also interesting to note that there are probably 10 or 12 different kinds of sand that these maps identify. 
That's right. Now, keep in mind, this was published in 1906. So you mentioned, yes, 10 or 12 different variations, but the science has actually evolved quite a bit past just the, the 10 or 12 variations in the sands and different types of soil. So these orally maps are certainly still important for those who are involved in the study of soils. But again, the science has changed so much that those classifications are, are essentially moot. They're no longer applicable to the types of soil. So who uses these maps nowadays? Well, as I mentioned before, a lot of the locations of buildings and railroads, trails, which became roads later on, are, are present on these maps. Um, so historians find these incredibly valuable because much of this infrastructure is now gone. A lot of the railroad systems no longer exist in the state of Florida. They also identify, I'll take for instance, since this map of Franklin County in 1927, you'll notice here there are two pickaxes, uh, and that indicates the location of a phosphate mine. Now, these phosphate mines are no longer there, but now we have an idea of exactly where the, the mining operation was. You can see a spur rail line that was traveling to that area. That's all been changed, and that's incredibly important for urban planners, for community members, for politicians, for those involved in, of course, again, in agricultural production, but even homeowners, anybody interested in the history of land use for a particular area would be concerned with these types of map because it shows the evolution of land use and how that's changed. And in Florida in the last hundred years, with such a rapid amount of development in the last hundred years or so, these have become vitally important to understanding the evolution of that land use. Well, thanks a lot, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ancient songs cry out to you Surely this sweet sand is slipping through Slipping through the glass of This is Florida Frontiers. The first professional football team in Florida was not the Dolphins or the Jaguars or the Bucks, As Robert Casanello from the University of Central Florida Public History Program explains, it was the Miami Seahawks. The team was located in Miami, and it was a team was called the Miami Seahawks. And they were part of the All-American Football Conference, a conference that was organized in 1944. Uh, by Arch Ward, who was the sports editor of the Chicago Tribune, and who had in, was the inventor of the baseball's all-star game and the college all-star game uh, in football. Miami was obviously not a big league town at this point. It turns out Miami was the smallest of any of the cities that had an AAFC franchise. It turned out also that in the end, it probably did not have enough fan base to support it over time. That was Dr. Richard Cropot author of NFL Football, A History of America's New National Pastime. He spoke to me about the 1946 Miami Seahawks, the very first professional football team to call Florida home. 
The Seahawks were part of a short-lived All-American Football Conference, or the AAFC, that was a rival to the National Football League. The Seahawks only lasted one season. Dr. Cropeau tells us why this new league and team emerged after World War II. Professional football was still at the margins. The NFL was at the margins. The AAFC certainly was at the margins. What the founders of the league were looking at in the late 40s was their belief that coming out of the war, there was going to be a kind of prosperity uh, in America, uh, and that that prosperity would generate more leisure time, and more leisure time could be transformed into more organized sport as entertainment. And a lot of people who invested in the AAFC and some of the people who were investors in the NFL were looking to make some money. Then there are always those people who get into professional sport because they're looking for exposure to promote themselves, to salve their own ego. And certainly that was involved with some owners as well. Dr. Crapeau tells us why they struggled. Well, I think if they had a winning season, they might have, they might have survived. I don't think they were ever going to make a lot of money because it, the city just wasn't big enough. You just weren't going to draw that many people out. If people were going to go watch football, they were probably going to go watch the Miami Hurricanes. And you had to give them some reason to come to watch the Seahawks. Seahawks didn't have any big stars any big players. So why go there? Initially, they drew 25, 26,000 fans for the first couple of games, but they were losing almost all the time. They lost seven out of their first eight games, and the fan base just disappeared. Uh, In the second half of the season, they were drawing about 9,000 fans. They wound up facing bankruptcy at the end, and uh, they couldn't get enough money to keep the team going. The Seahawks had a difficult relationship with the Cleveland Browns. One of the things that really hurt them initially is they had to play their first three games on the road, and they had to play their first game against Cleveland and the Cleveland Browns. And it turns out the Cleveland Browns was the best, by far the best team in the new league, probably the best team in professional football. Certainly by 1950, they were the best team in professional football, but many people would argue even in '46. They were that good. Uh, the, the opening game, they lost, I think, 44 to nothing. And it was downhill from there, as they say. Later in the season, when Cleveland came to play Miami at home, the game would be notorious for the racial climate that was present in the city. Cleveland had two African-American players. And when they were scheduled to come and play in Miami, uh, and when they, were, they played, of course, the first game in Cleveland uh, against Miami, and there was no issue there. But when they were scheduled to come down to Miami to play, first of all, the the Miami ownership notified uh, the Cleveland Browns and Paul Brown that they they should not bring their African-American players, that there was a law in Florida against interracial competition in sport, and they would not be allowed to play. And there was a good deal of consternation in the Browns organization about what to do and whether to challenge this. And in the end, I think what persuaded them not to bring the players was there were a number of threats. Uh, that came to the players from people in Miami. And in the end, Paul Brown thought, you know, this was not going to be a difficult game. He didn't have to have all of his players. They were going to win easily. And why risk? Uh, Why put somebody at risk uh, for that? And so they didn't uh, bring their players. Uh, And so it's one one of those another little interesting dark moments in the history of segregation in sport at a time period uh, when sport was desegregating. The NFL desegregated in 1946, uh, and and essentially 
The AAFC never had to desegregate because they never had segregation. They had African-American players from the beginning. That was Dr. Richard Corpeau, and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Join us right here again next week. In the meantime, you can join us on Facebook to get our daily post Today in Florida History, as well as information about upcoming events and much more. Also check out our content-rich website at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.